think it was Lord Eccles and the introduction of D. F. Mackenzie as the inaugural Panizzi lecturer, who, as he gave the introduction to the speaker, drank all the water. What a temptation. Welcome to Railroad School, the second uh, Charlottesville session of this year, with three more to come after this one. There will be lectures on July 16th, our 500th lecture. This is number 498. On the 23rd, Andrea Emel from Princeton, and on the 30th of July, Richard Kukta from the Folger. Our lecture tomorrow, a symphony in uh, diamonds, is in the third row. Michael Suarez will be speaking in 201 Clements. Yes, it's the person in the other square. And our lecture tonight is uh, someone who has not been to railroad school before, not for my lack of trying. It's a great pleasure and honor to have Alice Perhanshke here this evening to speak to us. She's the University Librarian at Yale. Thank you so much, and thank you for not drinking all the water. Um, this is really a great honor to have been invited as your guest to Rare Book School, and I'm really, really grateful to be here. Um, and also delighted to see my friend Karen Wittenborg um, and to at least have a chance to catch up with you now. Um, I'm green with envy and sort of tinged with the orange spirit of emulation. Uh, at, at what you've been doing recently at, at UVA. It's quite extraordinary, this building. It's, it's just beautiful. So all the way around, it's, it's simply lovely to be here. And um, I wish I could spend longer, but I've been enjoying my day, my one first taste of rare book school, and already plotting in my mind how I might uh, supplicate to be admitted as a student perhaps in the future. Um, I wanted to just start by referring to Terry's question to us all yesterday. Are special collections becoming balkanized with the books disappearing? Is there some kind of takeover by archivists going on? Are libraries neglecting their roles as the guardians of print culture? And from where I stand, the answer to that is a resounding, and I hope encouraging, no. Research libraries, for sure, are more aware than they have ever been of the distinguishing importance of their special collections taken as a whole. And in the digital environment, we do all share so much more content in common, which makes the artifact of the printed book a different thing, valued for different reasons, not just as the vehicle of information. It brings it closer to the collections of archives and papers that also make up our special collections. And this is Perhaps this preamble is, uh, it came into my mind mainly by way of apology for the fact that I'll be talking about things like monuments and works of art and archives and not just rare books. But another effect of the digital environment has been to make us all examine our book collections with new eyes. As Google's book digitizing project rolls on inexorably, UVA being one of its more recent recruits, Yale still not really quite on the sidelines, but out there in the penumbra of, of uh, non-disclosed negotiations. Along with Microsoft's and others' uh, uh, digitization, we learn that each research library holds books that cannot be found elsewhere. 
OCLC's collection analysis tool revealed not long ago that there were one million books at Yale catalogued in WorldCat, and not including those we have yet to catalogue, of course, which were not in any of the original first five libraries to partner with Google on their Google Book Project. The OCLC, OCLC tool is revealing also that a very high percentage of books in North American libraries, something over 60%, are held only in one, two, or three, and certainly fewer than five libraries. This, is, this still wobbly but startling st statistic is one factor in university librarians' thinking as we all look at our book collections with new eyes. And of course, uh, at UVA, with its splendid new special collections library, this is a very self-evident fact. So, having said that, my talk tonight is going to roam widely over the whole field of special collections. The questions I want to raise and the history I want to explore apply to a common human inheritance from the past, one in which works of art, monuments and archives, manuscripts and books are all objects of attention and concern, even if some of the glamour of the single museum piece or the sheer size and iconic significance of a Buddha carved out of a giant ancient rock face is what grabs the attention of the press. I want to take an historical approach to the question of cultural restitution and modern notions of patrimony, and I will argue that it is the history of warfare with all its surrounding political upheavals that has brought about our modern understanding of the ethics of cultural ownership. First, a few snapshots from my own experience. And um, I've been warned that I mustn't waggle my head speaking into this microphone, so if I become inaudible uh, for any reason, please will you wave at me. One day back in March 2000, when I worked at the British Library as Director of Special Collections, my obligations as custodian of one of the great aggregations of world-class material, research materials were brought home to me in a particularly poignant and vivid way. The Lindisfarne Gospels, greatest of all examples of Anglo-Saxon Anglo manuscript art, constitute a volume created on the island of Lindisfarne, or Holy Island, off the northeast coast of England, in honour of God and St. Cuthbert at the beginning of the 8th century AD, more or less in the days of the, of the Venerable Bede. It was acquired by the 16th century scholar Sir Robert Cotton, who collected numerous fine examples from the diaspora of monastic treasures after the Protestant Reformation in England. This volume descended to the British Library, with the rest of Cotton's extraordinary manuscript collection, bequeathed to the nation by his heirs. And periodically, it has been the subject of a passionately argued claim for restitution to the northeast of England. This isn't even international restitution. So that date in March 2000 was St. Cuthbert's Day, and a procession of about 60 people, complete with a member of parliament, of course, from the northeast, preceded by banners and accompanied by the music of Northumbrian bagpipes, detrained at King's Cross Station in London and arrived at the British Library to hold a vigil alongside the manuscript which was on display in our treasures gallery. A young schoolgirl played a lament on, quite magically on a Northumbrian fiddle and then the demonstrators gathered in the forecourt of the library with the news media in attendance to hear speeches before marching to the Houses of Parliament with a petition for the return of the Lindisfarne Gospels. 
This case is complicated in many ways, and I won't labour the complexities of British regional politics, but there are some broader issues. First of all, the British Library possesses a fabulous collection of manuscript texts from the foundations of world religions, not only Christian devotional works, but Jewish Haggadot, Islamic Qurans, Buddhist scrolls, Hindu Vedas. They derive from many centuries of collecting by British scholars, administrators, soldiers, diplomats, explorers, and simple travelers. Their routes to the British national collections are sometimes difficult to trace, with occasional clear cases of loot at some stage in the past, while sometimes, at the other end of the ethical spectrum, collections were gathered or purchased as the result of a deeply reverential intellectual curiosity about ancient cultures in other parts of the world. For example, the 18th century judge and scholar Sir William Jones, founder of the Asiatic Society of Bengal, was largely responsible for the rediscovery of Sanskrit. His important collections of Asian, man Asian manuscripts are now in the British Library, brought back by him from Asia. The early 20th century scholar and explorer Mark Arl Stein brought back quantities of critically important evidence of Chinese social, economic, and cultural life in the classical period from the caves of Dunhuang on the Silk Road, which had been closed for a millennium before he started the process of bringing back these scholarly trophies. Whatever their origins in the British national past, examples from among these irreplaceable artifacts now reside together on display carefully conserved, interpreted by expert curators in a gallery that is open every day of the week in the middle of a great city that welcomes millions of visitors every year from all over the world. The Lindisfarne Gospels is displayed in close proximity to a portion of the Codex Sinaiticus, and the Diamond Sutra, a Buddhist devotional scroll that's the earliest dated example of printing in the world. Parties of tourists make special visits to see these manuscripts, which have so many meanings to people from different religions, cultural and national backgrounds. And meanwhile, in the reading rooms, scholars consult hundreds of other examples that provide context. The new and wonderful sacred exhibition at the British Library, of which I've only so far seen the catalogue, but I'm sure some of you here have already seen the exhibit itself, which I'm longing to visit, it underscores the extraordinary cultural value of bringing these materials together, sponsored as it is, among others, by the King of Morocco, who has lent some of his national treasures to be seen together with the British ones. So, what are the arguments in favour of removing single items from this concentration of carefully tended research material to return them to their place of origin? Economic arguments are made that local and regional treasures provide a magnet for tourism to their region. But equally, treasures that are displayed far from home may have the effect of sending tourists who might not otherwise have thought of visiting the place. And meanwhile, who locally is going to pay to care for these treasures? Political arguments focus on the symbolic importance of a local or national treasure which is beyond price to the people to whom it, quote, unquote, belongs. But what of those other communities, the religious groups, the descendants of people from the area who migrated to distant countries, the students, the scholars of art and learning, and whose past is this, anyway? 
In the case of the British Library of the Lindisfarne Gospels, the Codex Sinaiticus, and other great treasures, including um, one of the great Qurans, um, the British Library has managed to assuage much of the demand for restitution of the original, and its collections to date remain intact, more or less. The Library has devoted great efforts to sharing its priceless heritage, first with the place of origin and then with the world by digitization. These are not just virtual versions that it produces of static digital images of selected pages, but comprehensive digital editions in the pioneering Turning the Pages series, which enable the reader to turn the pages on screen, to zoom in to small parts of the page. I'm sure most of you have seen these wonderful uh, representations. And you can even look at the minutest brush strokes in detail that the original scribe could not himself have seen. And when I first saw some of this technology, I was moved by the thought of the scribes laboring away in the flickering, dwindling twilight of Lindisfarne, who probably never saw in such beauty the work that they themselves had produced. And meanwhile, elsewhere, of course, all over the world, uh, we are beginning to restore the cultural inheritance uh, of communities around the world, at least virtually, uh, by reproduction in digital form. At Yale, we've produced separate digital editions of international treasures that range from paintings of medical conditions by the 19th century Chinese artist Lam Kua to the Beinecke Digital Library of medieval manuscripts and papyri, and of course, there is much, much more. The University of Virginia Library is celebrated for so much that it's doing in the digital environment to share its riches. Uh, most recently, the new Southern History Database not to mention the Valley of the Shadow, the Great Tibetan Project, and so on, some of the other wonderful work that's going on here. So the wonder of each, well, the wonder of each digital miracle wears off eventually. It remains true that this is a revolutionary way to bring great international treasures to vastly expanded audiences, and at the same time to enhance appreciation and study of manuscripts even compared with studying them with the naked eye. A whole new world of shared cultural heritage is opening up as our libraries undertake increasingly ambitious projects of digitization and the costs of production fall and the technology becomes increasingly commonplace, at least in the developed world. But there, of course, lies the rub. For citizens of the less developed world, whose most glorious contributions to civilization may lie buried or neglected beneath historical strata of economic disadvantage, geographic and climatic decline, or political strife, the new technology of sharing can be beyond reach. And it is also true, as none of us needs to be reminded, that the original is irreplaceable. No digital version is a complete substitute. Surely, we all understood the sense of acute loss that came with the destruction of the Library of Sarajevo in 1992, and we need scarcely mention recent calamities in Iraq. As professional custodians of treasures like theirs, our emotions may have been complex. Sympathy with their loss, a wish that more of their treasures had been stored somewhere else in a place of great, greater safety, like our own libraries, perhaps, and an instinct to search among our own collections for materials from these countries' history that we could digitize 
and so, in some sense, share with the deprived citizens of Sarajevo or Baghdad. The verb to own has a complicated meaning. So many of the collections on, we, on which we lavish care have come to our institutions by devious routes, not always well documented, not always legitimate, and often too complicated to unravel within any clear legal framework. Take the case of the medieval Icelandic manuscripts that were returned to Iceland by the government of Denmark through the good offices of the Royal Danish Library. It was natural to find materials of Icelandic origin held in Denmark by virtue of the fact that at one time the kings of Denmark ruled over Iceland. The independent Icelandic government asked for restitution of the manuscripts that they considered to be part of their heritage. But it took years of negotiation, informed by careful scholarship, to determine which manuscripts truly belonged in which country. And in the end, a judgment of Solomon was made. Those that were predominantly Icelandic in origin and subject matter returned to Iceland, but the many that reflected more evenly an intertwined inheritance of cultural and administrative history remained in Denmark. I'm reminded of the similar judgment of Solomon, fortunately not so geographically separated, which had to be made when the British Library ceased to be part of the British Museum. And, for example, uh, a decision had to be taken about Japanese illustrated books of the 17th century, one of the great treasures of the British Museum. It was determined that the custodians at the time would go through every book and see whether it had a preponderance of text or illustrated matter. And the preponderantly textual books with their beautiful illustrations went to the British Library, and those with important text, but more illustration than text, remained in the British Museum. At least it's only that they're only down the road from each other. How do you make these decisions? I mean, I, I, I'm, it, it may sound comical, but I, I think none of us would feel that we were in a position to ridicule the, the individuals who actually had, had to take those decisions. There are, of course, many cases of disputed ownership that involve not national but personal ownership. Libraries generally purchase materials in good faith from generally reputable dealers. We generally take pains to investigate provenance. The traffic in cultural materials between countries is regulated by export regulations that provide additional safeguards and which we adhere to. Although the sad case of Marion True, the former curator of antiquities at the Getty Museum, now being tried in Italy, reminds us that you can never be too careful. But what of collections or single items donated by private individuals where the antecedents may be less clear, perhaps to the donor and certainly to the library that receives the collection? Recent investigations of material unlawfully seized from its owners during the Holocaust period or in other ways during the Second World War are too numerous and perhaps too sensitive to mention here except in passing. We probably all know of institutions, perhaps including our own, that have faced the difficult task of dealing with a claim for restitution from a private family where the chain of ownership has to be established by tortuous research, even though both sides have only the most honourable intentions. All of this disputed material constitutes somebody's patrimony or inheritance. In some cases, it's the inheritance of many different communities. And I want now to explore for a short while a particular history, which I believe 
sheds light on the formation of our current ethical sensibilities on the whole topic of cultural restitution. In November and December 1943, the British War Office advisor on monuments and fine arts visited the Italian theatre of war and reported on the threats to monuments and works of art. He was one of the most knowledgeable and influential members of the cultural and academic establishment it would have been possible to find. The renowned archaeologist, excavator of the Babylonian city of Ur, Sir Leonard Woolley, and of course, the British Museum, owes its great treasures of Babylonian collections to the activities of Sir Leonard Woolley uh, during uh, the period before the Second World War, just as Yale University Library owes its collection of cuneiform tablets, the largest in North America, uh, to the activities of American archaeologists. Woolley, however, reported uh, and the result on the, on the threat to antiquities in Europe um, in, with a sense of tremendous urgency. And as a result, General Dwight D. Eisenhower issued on the 29th of December 1943 an order for the protection of ancient monuments. Quote, Today, we are fighting in a country which has contributed a great deal to our cultural inheritance, a country rich in monuments, which by their creation helped and now in their old age illustrate the growth of the civilization which is ours. We are bound to respect those monuments so far as war allows. He went on to say that while the safety of allied troops must always take precedence, all forces must be instructed in the whereabouts of important historic monuments and must not use the phrase military necessity to cloak indifference or mere convenience. An Anglo-American court of inquiry into the actions of Allied troops in Naples met in the following months, and administrative orders were issued that spelled out the requirements for correct treatment of historic buildings and other treasures as the armies moved northwards through Italy. These were not mere pious words on paper. The governments of the United Kingdom and the United States put very considerable efforts into the preservation of this shared cultural inheritance. In the United States, the Roberts Commission and its counterpart in the United Kingdom, the Macmillan Committee, each chaired by a distinguished judge and composed of senior museum directors, librarians and others, met both separately and some members occasionally together from early in 1944 until after the end of the war to consider and steer policy on the preservation and restitution of works of art, archives and other material in enemy hands and a third self-constituted committee of sporadic influence to both governments was headed by the exiled Frenchman Paul Vaucher and brought together representatives of the governments in exile of Nazi-occupied Europe. Reporting back to these committees, steering their work and coordinating efforts at preservation in the midst of war were numbers of military personnel who had come from peacetime occupations as museum curators, archivists, librarians, archaeologists, and art historians. These individuals often felt themselves to be struggling against impossible obstacles of bureaucracy, military priorities, and sheer incomprehension. But with the rueful benefit of hindsight, it seems now quite remarkable that the Allies engaged in all-out warfare on an unprecedented scale did devote significant resources to the care and preservation of the past 
in a world whose future they were trying to save. The fundamental question that occupied the Allied authorities during and after the war was the issue of ownership. And here it's necessary to juxtapose the Third Reich's and its satellite government's understanding of ownership with that of the Allies. Ownership of personal property was notoriously not much respected by the Nazis. And the legacy of confiscations from Jewish families, forced sales, confiscations from those who openly defied the regime, societies of Freemasons and several other groups haunts us still today. Strenuous efforts were made by the Allied governments and by museums, galleries, archives and libraries during and immediately after the Second World War to identify the legitimate owners of material that had been unlawfully taken and return their property to them. Those efforts, of course, have been renewed in recent years by governments in North America and Western Europe. I want to turn now to the way different European governments and their agents regarded ownership by nations or people because I think in order to appreciate the Allies' policy on cultural heritage, which I would argue underlies our position in common today, uh, but alas, not always the actions of our government representatives, it's helpful to know what people were up against. As far as Mussolini's fascist government in, in Italy was concerned, the nations under Ita Italy's dominion in North Africa were the symbol and the promise of the rebirth of the ancient Roman Empire. For them, the ownership of this legacy led to lavish expenditure on preserving and even reconstructing the classical remains of Cyrenaica and Tripolitania during the 1930s. And to quote from the official account by Colonel Sir Leonard Woolley to the UK War Office, it is true that scientific research was throughout made subordinate to, or more often, altogether abandoned in favour of theatrical display, but no visitor could fail to be struck by the imposing effect of the excavations in North Africa. And to the Italian fascist, they did indeed symbolise the glories of his traditional ancestry. It was a bitter blow, therefore, that wrested from his grasp this imperial heirloom. We could be certain that our treatment of the Roman monuments would be jealously watched and any shortcomings used to our discredit there were some cases of negligence and damage and of looting by Allied troops when they first overran these sites, but the speed of the campaign in North Africa meant that most of the damage was actually done from the air. And thanks to Woolley's watchful and expert eye, the situation was brought under control. The main monuments were guarded by troops trained to understand the importance of what, what they watched over. But it was this experience in North Africa that led Woolley to uh, persuade uh, Dwight Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, to issue his uh, directive before the troops could do too much damage during their northwards march through Italy. Meanwhile, by contrast with the Italian fascist approach, the German government's approach was not quite the same, although there are similarities that may reflect the characteristics of fascist states. Most conspicuously, the sense of historical entitlement to a large chunk of cultural property in the possession of other nations reflected an imperialist and expansive view of their respective people's past, and this was something that Hitler and Mussolini and their governments had in common. But the officials of the Third Reich 
sought to restore to German ownership a great swathe of archives from France, which in their view rightfully belonged to the history of the German people. And their claim was reinforced in a way that the Italians could not claim in North Africa by a background of French appropriations from Germany going back to the 17th century and especially to Napoleon. But there was a further dimension to Nazi cultural imperialism. As the Polish scholar Karl Estreicher expressed it in a memorandum to the Roberts and Macmillan committees on both sides of the Atlantic, quote, in addition to mass murders and executions, expulsion of hundreds and thousands of the local population from their ancient abodes, beside mass deportation of the population to forced labor, the leaders of the European New Order declared a ruthless war on the spiritual culture of the subjugated nations. All manifestations of national life in the sphere of culture are regarded by them as dangerous for the future of colonization. Meanwhile, there were other strands of opinion on the subject of ownership. Was cultural patrimony something that related to a nation's past wherever it might be held, as members of the Vaucher Committee came close to claiming? In this view, Dutch paintings held in a French museum would be cultural patrimony, in a way rather parallel to the Nazi government's view that all archives held in France that illustrated the history of the German people should be removed to Germany. Alternatively, and this opinion could be and was held simultaneously with the first and by the same people, when the time came to make restitution, if a stolen work of art had been destroyed or irreparably damaged, the government or persons guilty of despoiling it should give back another object of equal financial value. The interplay of these conflicting opinions is evident in the official and personal records of the committees and individuals involved throughout the war. And against this background of conflicting values, the goal of the Allied governments was first to win the war and only second by a long way to ensure justice in the preservation and ultimately the restitution of cultural and scientific heritage. And yet they did indeed devote scarce military resources to protecting the inheritance of the countries in which they were fighting. An inheritance that was clearly identified as something held in common across natural, national boundaries and part of a shared human history. Let me give just a bit more attention to the threats that were posed specifically to libraries and archives during the Second World War and the role of archivists on both sides. Uh, the word archives wrote Sir Hilary Jenkinson, later Deputy Keeper of the Public Records in the UK and the most distinguished British archivist of his generation, is here used to signify accumulations of documents, charters, letters, registers, accounts, minutes, which have come together by a natural process in the course of business of all kinds. They are not necessarily old or beautiful, though they often may be. Whether they date from early periods or from the present day, archives, are all in some sense unique and therefore irreplaceable. All are closely related to each other and to the life of the community which produced them. And they contain as a whole an incalculable quantity of unexplored knowledge. This mass of information is not only important for historical purposes, but often essential for the conduct of the war or the reconstitution of civil life. 
I've just quoted from Jenkinson's preamble to his survey of archives in Italy during the war, and it serves well to define why archives were valued by both sides. Jenkinson had spent much of the last two years of the war in Italy advising on the preservation of archives, but he had had to fight for that role because the head of the British Committee on Monuments, Lord Macmillan, apparently assumed that the British Museum could really represent the interests of all library, manuscript, and archival materials, um, a, a thought that, that struck horror into the soul of this former denizen of the National Archives in England, even though I did subsequently land up at the British Library. The definition of archives that Jenkinson produced was very necessary, but in the field, it quickly became apparent that the specific skills of archivists were indeed needed to record material at risk and identify what it was. And the attachment, not just of art experts and museum curators, but also of librarians and professional archivists to army units, was an impressive feature of the Allies' concern for the preservation of cultural heritage. The, Allied, the, the German Army's archival unit in France, as they re reported to the Supreme Commander for France in 1944, carefully preserved and protected French libraries and archives, while also listing those they considered to be significant for German history and therefore to be removed. They believed that France contained more material of use in the great project of researching the history of Greater Germany than any other country, and they had long memories. At the peak of activity from January 1940 until the winter of 41 to 42, 13 professional archivists plus a lawyer and a historian from the Reich Institute for the History of the New Germany plus support staff worked under the direction of the Prussian Director of State Archives, Professor Schnatt, to identify and remove all missing German archival material in, one, in some 176 state and municipal archives. And of course we all will remember the stories, the famous stories of um, Goering's removal of works of art wholesale from, from France and other European countries. There were, uh, a, 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 in a list submitted to Goebbels in 1943, were 20,903, quote, objects from some 25 French libraries and archives. And Professor Schnatt's team additionally set to work to prepare a detailed catalogue of every scrap of archival material in France that had a bearing on German history. The Allied response to this evidence of systematic spoliation by German officials was to prepare a military directive before the war had even ended. And it read in part, immediately after Germany surrenders, you will issue an ordinance making it an offense punish punishable in military courts for any person in Germany willfully to destroy, remove, conceal, or falsify archives, records, and documents. You will, in your zone, take immediate steps to secure against damage, dispersal, or mishandling all archives and records which may be designated to you by appropriate authority as of permanent importance. So let me loop back to end my story in Italy. No doubt in France and all, all across occupied Europe there were heroic stories and some comical ones about the hazards that the war posed to manuscript collections and the fortitude of some of their custodians. 
Hilary Jenkinson reported to Leonard Woolley on a visit to Italian archives where some of the Archivi di Stato in the Villa di Solo in Galliano, sorry, the Villa de Soli in Galliano, were stored in bulk in a farmhouse. Some had been piled up to let American soldiers get through, and one room, quote, they shared with the flower bins and screens, and with a hen which was hatching out a clutch of eggs in the middle of volumes of early accounts. The young archivist, H.E. Bell, commissioned as an archival officer in the British Army with the rank of major, wrote to Jenkinson in 1945 about the respect that everyone he met in Italy showed for preserving archives, notwithstanding the hen, and how much he hoped that situation might continue after war. Devotion to protecting the archives was not lacking, despite his worries about the conditions in which they were kept. A.P. Bell wrote of one Italian priest in a small town, quote, with great secrecy, he led me to the place where he had deposited his chapter archives, along with the skeleton of the founder, which shook me a bit when that groaned out at me. As I looked at the destruction in the town, I am afraid I let slip the improper question, how did you stick it? And he replied, simply and sincerely, why, my archives and my people were here. And he then pointed to a bench against the door of his deposit where he had slept when shelling was at its worst, quote, so as to be near the documents. Bell found, travelling from town to town in Italy in the closing weeks of the war, that the work of the archivist was in every way privileged. We are galloping ghosts, the admin officers despair, he wrote, moving ahead of their orders to ensure the safety of the Italian archival heritage and, according to his account, greeted everywhere with enthusiasm by the custodians of those priceless materials. The aftermath of the war brought disappointments to the high hopes of the monuments, fine arts and archives officers whose role in the armed forces had been so highly valued in safeguarding as much as possible of the European inheritance from the ravages of war. Despite strong recommendations from both the Roberts and the Macmillan committees, the Allied Control Commissions after the war failed to set up a restitution commission to deal with the claims with claims for the return of personal property. And in this aim, they were frustrated by the relative indifference of the Allied governments as they struggled to achieve a post-war settlement in which the voice of culture and learning was drowned out by the louder cries of hunger, re-education and reconstruction. No system for dealing with personal claims other than through governments was established. And this meant, as, the, as the, the advocates in both the Roberts and Macmillan committees observed, that many of the victims of spoliation were put in the position of having to claim against their own government. But, on the other hand, thanks to their extraordinary dedication and the great dedication of resources and the high level of professional work even at the height of the war, the Allied governments and their respective control commissions had enough information to enable them to restore most objects and collections that had been removed from art museums, churches and archives. By October 1946, for instance, the US military government restitution division was able to announce in Berlin that more than 40,000 separate paintings had been restored to their countries of ownership the great majority, to France. Even while the war was going on, the Allies devoted considerable resources to restoring damaged works of art in the reconquered areas of Italy. And the archivists, 
after more than 100 personal visits and reports on a further 60 archives in Italy, we're relieved to find little evidence of spoliation or looting. Fears that the partisans might loot some of the fine bindings from Siena or other valuable materials proved quite unfounded. Jenkinson was glad to report on the excellent work being undertaken by the Italian commander to whom he handed over archival responsibility. And he had made his own contribution by donating photographic copies of some Italian materials from the public record office in London, and generally recorded a sense of satisfaction at handing the management of Italian archives to the Italians. The experience of the Allies in World War II suggests some general questions about the protection of cultural heritage in times of war and conflict. First, I find it quite notable that the British and American governments and their adversaries all devoted scarce resources of time, transport, planning, money, and above all, skilled labor to preserving the European inheritance. And although it's not within my scope here to examine what happened in the other theaters of war, a similar concern characterized the Allied armies there too. I think we are all familiar with the fact that so many of our, our libraries in the West contain materials that simply wouldn't exist uh, were it not for uh, their having been collected and rescued um, under the auspices of military protection from East Asia as well as from Europe. The values for which the Second World War was fought applied not just to territory and the rights of people and nations to self-determination, but it extended also to the preservation of their national identity. And beyond that, as the Eisenhower Directive of 1943 affirmed, there was a greater good than national identity, and that was to preserve the origins and growth of the civilization that is ours. Thank you.